My name is Neil Sögren. I'm Sam Towns. And I'm Alex Norton. All right, we are live. We are testing out some new software for recording this week, so we might have some technical difficulties, and if we do, we'll let you know. You can better <laughs> hear my caramel chocolatey baritone. <laughs> uh, you can hear my abject exhaustion. <laughs> yeah, it's been one of those weeks. Yes, absolutely. So, yeah, it's been a pretty rough week for all of us, I think. So, uh, Sam, you want to tell us about your week? Oh uh, well, um, that's. I mean, it's been a pretty good week actually. Uh, finally, my burns have healed to the point that I could finally swing a hammer again. Um, I had a student come by on Tuesday and do some forging, uh, learning how to forge tongs. And then on Wednesday, I did a live stream where I forged a set of tongs, a couple of scrolls, uh, and a broadhead, hunting arrow broadhead. Um, but yeah, so you know, I've managed to get back into the, the swing of things. Today was a bit rough. We had 98% uh, humidity. It was raining, and it was 31 oh. degrees. Oh, damn. Yeah, so it was, it was 31 degrees, and it was raining. It felt like I was swimming when I was walking. It was. Um, you know it. You know it's hot when your forge is floating. <laughs> Yeah, I was I was hanging doors. I had, I had two doors to hang, and one of them was a solid oak door. Oh, jeez! Um, <laughs> you know, you want to know something? I thought you wrote the humidity to me before, like ninety-eight percent humidity. I thought you were making a joint—not uh, a joint <laughs> joke. I, <mean. laughs> I thought you were making a joke. Oh, about Australians <laughs> never joke about humidity. Yeah, but I thought no, you I mean... meant humility. I thought you meant. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, humility isn't something I'm familiar with. So you know. Um... <laughs> but no, so it was it was a ridiculously humid day, and uh, yeah, so I've I've sweated my body weight today. He did uh... get in a good live stream though. Yeah, it was it was a good live stream yesterday. We had a lot of uh, good turnout. Kyle showed, Kyle Royer from Kyle Royer Knives showed up for a sec, and uh, Roy from Christ Centered Ironworks joined us, and uh, he awesome. will be joining us um, next week for next week's podcast. Yes, yeah, definitely so, tune in for that. It's going to be yeah, awesome. He's, he's graciously uh, graciously allotted some time for us to uh, to answer some questions, so uh, I look forward to to that podcast. Very much so. So, a kind of busy week for you then, Sam. Yeah, it's been a mad week. Uh, how about yourself, Nils? What have you been up to? Oh, I've been up to a lot of things this week. As you know, I had uh, my, my weekend was uh, booked. <clears throat> Not uh, mm. going into details there, but uh, mm. it, was, uh, it was splendid, so to speak. Yeah, uh, excellent. Yes, um, we'll see where that goes more info in the future <clears throat> well back to forging uh, i've been uh, i've been working on a new line of access that i spoke of i think a couple of weeks ago actually making that happen now starting the first billet and uh, we'll see where Ooh. it goes it's uh, supposed to be you know just a simple uh, chopping axe or chopping axe what do you say chop wood with you know yeah, so, yeah. Uh, so it's gonna be fun. I've never made an axe like that before, so it's gonna be pretty, 
fun. You think that uh, an axe maker cool. usually makes axes that uh, made for chopping wood, but all my axes are Viking axes, so it's a challenge, to say the least. So mm. I started. I also that noticed on your Instagram you did a hammer. Yes, <laughs> uh, yes, that's true. Uh, I got inspired by Sam, uh, and I thought that I should try. I didn't find find any axles, so this is mystery steel. Uh, I I'm not sure how to work it, uh, but uh, it's a test piece anyway. So I just wanted to see if I could uh, form it uh, in the way that I wanted it, and uh, I think it's hardenable. Mm. I know that it is hardenable. I just don't know how yet but uh, i think my father knows what kind of steel it is so we're gonna look for some information on the net internet yeah no it looked great so um you know yeah good so, job, uh, yeah thank you uh all the thanks to you though i watched uh, some of your videos so <laughs> <laughs> but uh i also been working on the sword um i noticed uh, after grinding a while that it was a bit uh, twisted and that's so uh, hard uh, working that out sometimes when it's so long and it's twisted in tiny ways along the blade it's so hard to get it straight so but i think i uh, fixed it uh, kind of good so now i can grind it out i think so and yeah, also cool. i'm waiting i'm also waiting a deliverance today i think on new uh, belts for the grinder so that's gonna be mm. very fun more on that later though yeah, very cool how about yourself alex I have actually been quite horrifically unwell this week. I've picked up something, so I haven't really been getting too much done. Uh, whenever I uh, get ill or uh, am prevented from uh, working at my shop, I, um, I tend to do a lot of research. So I've been doing a lot of reading on uh, making Mokumagane, um, which should be interesting. It's, if you're unfamiliar with that, it's imagine um, a Damascus made of uh, colorful metals like copper or bronze, brass, nickel, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and great for jewellery or ornamental accents on knives and, and such. So I've been doing a lot of reading on that and we'll probably be having a go in the near future. Um, as um, Sam will tell you, I've been doing a lot of research on forge welding in general and um, <laughs> I'll, I'll be diving in um, headfirst eventually, but um, blacksmithing isn't all I do so um, I've been quite busy with other work lately which has kept me out of the shop unfortunately and then getting sick on top of it didn't help but what I have made a lot of progress on is uh, assembling uh, I'm calling it my Franken grinder I'm building a 2x72 grinder um, and with my background in both uh, engineering and electrical engineering I've been fabricating a lot of it myself and doing all the wiring for it which is uh, very tricky to do um, and I don't recommend it for somebody that's inexperienced in those fields, but it's <laughs> uh, it's actually it's finally starting to really shape up and come together, and it all it all works. And um, it's in the phase where I'm just sort of tuning it up and making it a bit prettier and neater. So getting to fire that up with its giant two horsepower motor, it should make a, a very large difference. Considering my uh, previous grinder was a small one by thirty that had a three hundred and seventy watt motor, and hmm. that thing. You, you can't even, you know, give yourself a, a manicure on that thing with any sort of speed. So well, uh, doing ni doing knives on it was a nightmare. <laughs> but that basically leads us into tool time, right? Yeah. So no. tool time. Welcome to tool time. Tool time. Tool time. Yeah. 
I'm gonna work on that uh, jingle uh, in the future. <laughs> I think. We need a jingle for it. Yeah. Yeah, we need a jingle. You want you want uh, you want music or just a choir that sings uh, or something? <laughs> oh, we could probably make fun. it similar, similar to the intro, yeah. something like that. Something oh, funny and entertaining. Manly, then, like the intro. Yeah. Yes. Gloriously manly. Okay, I'll fix that. Okay, tool time this week. We're going to talk about grinders, and grinders are probably one of the most used and abused tools. Probably one of the most in the workshop of a blacksmith. Two by seventy-two grinders aren't just in uh, useful in the domain of knife makers, as uh, you can see if you watch the channels like like Sam's, um, because hammer smiths uh, they're fantastic for facing hammers. Uh, getting that uh, nice, smooth, rounded finish. It, they're useful for all sorts of touch-up work or, or reshaping stock, creating... Uh, I, I, I quite still remember when Sam, actually on a live stream, ran out to the shed and within the space of about four minutes made a broaching tool for uh, handling a knife. Uh, very, very useful tools that can hog away material at a very rapid speed, which is useful in all sorts of uh, scenarios for any metal worker. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I use my 2x72 on, like, I've probably used it on more random stuff than I have on knives recently. You know, axe blades, hammerheads, um, all that kind of stuff. The, the profiling of material once it's been forged and all that kind of stuff. With a two by seventy two grinder, or or even a like a two by forty eight or a two by ninety six, well, any of those uh, high powered belt grinders is incredibly useful. And I've never found a uh, solid wheel grinder like your bench, your standard bench grinders that can even hold a candle to the amount of material removal you can get from a belt grinder. Yeah. And that's what it really comes down to. If you're trying to do this for a living. You really need to get that speed, you need, because you could use a hand filing jig to bevel a knife. But if you're doing this for a living, you're going to do one knife every two days that way. <laughs> yeah. But a two two if, by seventy two, it'll take knife. you fifteen minutes. Yeah, and and that's it. And the the adaptability of it is what is really its strength. That and its power because you can attach contact wheels or spindle wheels or all different, you know, hollow grind platens to the front of it. And it's just that versatility is unmatched by any other type of grinder. Yeah, well, um, one of my, one of my favorite um, bladesmiths, um, Bruce Bump, <clears throat> who's famous for his uh, folding knives. I think he was the man who, uh, who said the quote, you, you know, you don't need a lot of tools to make a really good knife but you need a lot of really good tools to make a lot of really good knives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's very true. Yeah, that's so a good you know, quote. I like you that. Can, you can make a Mastersmith like quality knife, and there are actually a couple of Mastersmiths out there who only use files and only use hand tools. Like They don't use power tools at all. Um, Wolfgang, yeah, Wolfgang Lurchner... Um, on Instagram, if you check out Wolfgang Lurchner, um, he, he makes the most ridiculously intricate art daggers that I have ever seen. And I remember when I first found out that all he uses is files. <laughs> you know, he, does, he does everything by hand. It blew my mind. Um, wow. He makes the most intricate, um, integral daggers, Damascus stuff. 
just in crazy stuff, and it's all Master Smith quality. He's a Master Smith of the ABS. Yeah, I see. So it, you uh... don't, yeah, you don't need the powered grinders and stuff like that to make really good quality stuff. It's just that the powered grinders and power hammers and all that kind of stuff make it a lot easier to do a lot of good quality stuff quickly. Yeah, I mean, it comes down to are you doing this for a hobby or are you doing this to try and make a bit of money? Yeah. Well, that's it, yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're trying to do it for a living, then you can't, you know, subsist on making one knife every three months. <laughs> um, so, yeah. it's No matter how hard I try. Well, yeah, and I mean, when I first got into to bladesmithing, my the first grinder I bought was one of those little two hundred dollar Ryobi bench grinders yep. with the disc grinder on one side and the the four inch by you know like thirty inch um, yep. belt, and that was the most useless <laughs> useless grinder <laughs> I could have ever purchased. Yeah, it's but, horrible. You know, it, it did the job to a certain extent. Yeah, it was I a mean, good start. Yeah, for for me it was like uh, I watched other bladesmiths like making swords, and they. I always used the angle grinder at first, and then I filed everything. So when I watched people online, men at arms and stuff, when they used their belt grinders, and it was so smooth, <laughs> I was so jealous. Yeah. So I, I actually also went and bought uh, a similar grinder that you did, Sam, and uh, I mean. Just getting that smooth and uh, even surface was like a yeah. dream. I, I thought that, oh, it's finished now. I don't even need to polish it because it looks so good. <laughs> but uh, then you upgrade and you upgrade and you get, your eyes get uh, used to better stuff, I guess. Well, that's it. You're always, you're always looking for, you know, kind of, you're always looking for improvement as we've covered in previous videos, uh, in previous yeah. podcasts, I should say. Um, Which to always, an extent is good. Yeah, yeah, that's it. So you know, the the pursuit of um, of perfection is is you know the most noble of pursuits. And I mean, but, I uh, I, um, I was infamous for a while for, um, for sort of fighting against getting a two by seventy two. Figure I could uh, <laughs> make do with all sorts of other things, and um, I, I don't regret it. Let's let's say let's just put <laughs> let's leave it at that. <laughs> as, yeah. as speaking speaking for the crowd that that keeps trying to insist that they can get along without one um you, you can't not if you want to actually make a career of it yeah if well, you're just doing it for a hobby you can easily get away with it yeah absolutely i mean getting started even if you plan on making it your your job eventually like if that's your aim in the future there's nothing saying that you have to start with the 2 by 72 no, you know, like there's there's nothing saying that you start your your blacksmithing or bladesmithing journey um, with a two by seventy two grinder with you know a power hammer and all that kind of stuff. You can't let that kind of thing keep you from doing what you love. So it's always important to kind of you know rein in your. Uh, well, actually, your own... we covered this. We we covered sort of covered this in the last episode that is coming out tomorrow. Um, where it's in a, in a lot of ways, it's good to start out with the terrible quality tools or just doing everything with hand files and, and all that sort of thing because it makes you understand the why. And if you understand yeah. the why, it may, leads to better quality work. 
Yeah, that's it. Exactly. exactly. I mean, I can tell you that uh, my grinder is not the best one. It's uh, pretty good. It's solid. It's a lot better than what we talked about earlier, those uh, four-inch by 30-inch belt grinders with the disc. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, my, I mean, how do you buy a 2x72 grinder? It's not super easy if you don't have a lot of cash because they're pre- pretty expensive. Even mine cost me around, I think... $800 I think and it's mm. pretty shit if you compare it to like Sam's or yours Alex mm. or all that you see on internet but but I mean it's still a power powerhouse but it's not the things that you can expect not being perfect when you buy a cheaper is that it will not align perfectly so yeah. you will have yeah. to work a lot of, a lot on the adjustment and you should just know how many it took me like 2 weeks before I could even start it and have a belt still rolling on it because it always <laughs> went away and it looks so funny when they go away because it looks like they're running they away run across from me. the floor <laughs> <laughs> I'm going away well <laughs> so <laughs> you know, I mean, Alex is kind of taking the uh, the cheapest approach that you possibly could which is basically building his own from scratch. Um, from scratch. <laughs> you did? I mean, he bought he bought a grinder frame, but you know he's he's kind of he's building his own contact wheels and his own um, drive wheel, and you know he's wired up his own motor and all that kind of stuff. So that's yeah, that's even, kind of the even custom made platens for it. It's um it's it's a very DIY build in an effort to try and get that cost down because it is a big investment. If you were to buy a pre made one you're looking at somewhere in the range of two to three and a half grand. And mm. your, your average knife maker or bladesmith that's doing this for a hobby can't really lash out that kind of money. Mine altogether is going to be about 750 bucks total, all said and done. Yeah. I mean, my, my fire ant that everyone has seen on my, on my YouTube channel um, with the pedestal cost me $2,400. Hmm. And that's wow. with no extra attachments. Like I, I want to get the uh, disc grinding attachment and the swivel uh, attachment, the, the you know, like the tilt platen and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, and that's going to cost me. Yeah, that's going to cost me extra on top of that. The uh, the main reason that it costs so much is because it's already had all of the kinks worked out for me. Um, you know, there's a lot of R and D that's gone into the development of that um, of that grinder, so yeah. therefore I don't have to worry about faffing about with it. And as somebody who is currently in the process of building one, the, the design that goes into it and the precision that's required in getting it to work right is it's a, it's a lot of work. If you don't have any sort of engineering background, you may see it as something. It's just some wheels and a frame. You know, I can just weld something up. And really, it's it's much more complicated than that, especially when you start getting into the electronics because you're, you're not dealing with little motors here. You're not dealing with you know, something that came out, you ripped out of an angle grinder, you're dealing with, or like in my case, a two horsepower uh, industrial strength motor. Even run, I, I was uh, using a VFD instead of VSD in my, my situation. So I was worried about the torque at low speeds. And um, even running at four hertz, it nearly broke my wrist off trying to grab the axle. Well, yeah. so it's, you don't you don't want to mess it up, you know. It's it can be potentially dangerous. So you got to know what you're doing, and it's not for everybody. And I, I totally understand how some people would just prefer to buy something that's pre-made. And and to be honest, I'd recommend it. 
Um, but yeah, if you are if you are determined to make it cheap, you can make them yourself. Just don't prepare to knock it together in a weekend. It's going to be a long process. Yeah, and I mean, if you want to like grab one, uh, it's sometimes it's uh, you you can go to those big manufacturers and get one, but then you gotta have to pay the full price that we spoke of mm. earlier, or you can do as I did, and I found uh, I like you searched the. Uh, the Craigslist or eBay sorts in Sweden here uh, locally. Mm. And I just kept my eyes on that searching every night before I went to bed. I watched, has there come any new one? Because there's always a, a lot of um, belt grinders that's made for wood and they're probably going to work yeah. somewhat, but uh, they're not going to have that effect that uh, a true usually metal. much low, lower wattage engines on the, the motors on them. Yeah, because they don't have to like removing wood and removing metal is completely different things so uh mm. you want a really powerful one if you want to uh, like grind i mean it. a lot of i mean i for the first four years of my bladesmithing career i used a um four by oh so it was a 150 by 1220 so that's a four by four by 72 i think four by four by 48 oh is that oh. is that that big woodmaster in the background of your yeah. Workshop. yeah the hafco the hafco woodmaster that i've still got in the corner of my shop you can see it in the shots it's a big yeah. blue big blue machine um and that thing's got a horse and a half motor on it but the it the um it's wired up to run at a specific speed which is a very low speed because it's made for working wood and because it doesn't have a variable speed drive you can't really change the speed and the faster you run your belts a the longer they last and b the more material they remove yeah and the other thing is that for most woodworking grinders, the you know the larger platen grinders, you'll find that the belts available for them are specifically for woodworking. So like aluminium oxide belts are mm. fairly good for wood because they're very sharp, but they're terrible for steel because they like you know they blunt almost instantaneously. Yeah. Um, whereas in the two by 72, you can have anything from aluminum oxide to zirconium oxide to ceramics. Yeah. And obviously when you're, when you're working, uh, when you're hogging off lots of material, you want ceramics. And, you know, that's, that's from, you know, it comes from a guy who's spent a lot of time hogging off material on a grinder. <laughs> yeah. And also <laughs> the, the thing, the thing is that, uh, there are even more things that you can get for your two by 72 grinders that will actually make the whole process the whole process of for example making a sword a lot easier because you can see a lot of different sword makers they have a lot of different processes of finishing their blades like some people yep. they use their sandpaper up to a 3000 grit some people don't i mean it depends on the maker i think and some people use scotch bright and i have been very interested in make, uh, using scotch bright because it seems like a quick way and easier way i just want to try it or at least i will get that mirror polish on it easier with scotch bright i think so i found uh, two 2x72 uh, belts that are scotch bright belts in different yeah, uh, belts, yeah. grits so so i i've just ordered a, a few of those so i'm going to try them out and i mean that'd be great yeah, just by doing yeah. that, now I don't have to move between a lot of work spaces and do a lot of different stuff. I can do most of my things on the grinder. I can 
start uh, grinding it uh, up to uh, 300 uh, grit then i can use sandpaper up to 600 or stuff uh, up to a thousand and then i can move on to, to the scotch bright and we're done so it's gonna be be a lot easier and w- one thing that you really want on a sword is like the pat scratch pattern to go uh with the blade uh, not yes. against yeah. it so and by having it on the the belt grinder i now can do that very easy so uh yeah. it's gonna be really fun to try it out there are I mean, some things that i would argue that are almost impossible to do or not not almost impossible probably the wrong way to painfully difficult to do without something with the versatility of a 2x72 or one of those larger belt grinders such as one of the things that i'm known for with my work is cutthroat razors shaving razors and doing a hollow yeah. grind without any sort of large contact wheel or a, or a hollow grind platen on a 2x72 is painful it's a horrendously painful process mm. absolutely I mean, I will. I will say on the subject of Scotch Bright, um, it does. That is a very much an aesthetic choice. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, for for me personally, I I absolutely abhor Scotch Bright finishes because they tend to wash out the lines on a lot of things. Um, you know, I'm I'm one of those guys that really likes my lines to be clean and crisp, uh, and yeah. Scotch Bright tends to wash a lot of stuff out. Indeed. Um. But you know that that's one of the things about two by seventy two grinders is that the the availability of so many different kinds of um, of belt, including finishing belts. Like recently, I picked up the uh, Trizac Gator Grit belts, which are a high grit belt. They're a four hundred grit belt, the ones I got. Um, but they've got these uh, little, almost like pyramids of grit on them, so they last um, a lot longer than standard four hundred grit belts for yeah. finishing, and that way. That way I can maintain my lines and get a really high grip finish. I've seen that. Um, uh, I'm going to try ordering a few of those as well. Me too. They're, they're yeah. very expensive, but they're, yes. um, they're worth it. Yeah. So, well, so if they uh, last that long, then it's worth it, really. Yeah. That's I a- wanted to get into that. First, I just wanted to uh, mention the Scott Bright thing because this is could be a discussion for a later time but i, I know uh, I'm, I'm with you there because i also like the more scotch bright has like a more of a digital feel to it and the sandpaper finish has more like an analog feel to it if you want if you're speaking in yeah. uh, music terms but i'm all with you with, uh, with that but the thing is that if i can provide a faster way to get uh, a, f- a finished product I can also lower my prices for those kinds of swords. So I'm thinking to having different types of swords that if you want a more expensive sword with the traditional look, uh, you can get that. Or you can have a mirror polished blade that looks uh, very uh, produced, if you want to put it yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. That, that's how I'm thinking about I mean, it. But, yeah. That's why, that's why BKS do most of theirs with Scotch Bright. You know, Baltimore Knife and Sword, the guys previously from Man at Arms. Yeah. Um, most of their blades are scotch rided. Yeah, I think yeah. that's the main takeaway. Really, is that a two by seventy two with its because uh, because it's got such a range of uh, attachments, but also a, the biggest range of belts and the ease of getting the belts. It really allows different smiths to find their style a lot better Absolutely. than any other type of grinder would. Yeah, I, I I wanted to go into the the part on the 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 buying the cheapest kinds of belts because. I've been a very cheap person uh, with my belts <laughs> earlier, and I bought uh, a big pack of uh, everything from 6 grit to 
320 with the cheapest they cost me five dollars each and that's yep. pretty cheap uh, for a private uh, without being a company so uh, um but uh, you get some really bad stuff with them as well they go out uh, very fast they get blunt and also the snapping of them is very <laughs> dangerous and my, yeah, they my in the face yeah my grinder is like uh, you cannot uh, it's not a variable speed so when once you pr press uh, the on button it goes full speed <laughs> so yeah. you're in for a treat if you're if you have bad belts and uh, since my belt grinder isn't exactly aligned there are some uh, i need to like the, the adjustable wheel i need to have it at a slight angle which makes a pressure on the belt so they snap pretty easy my belts if i don't buy the yeah. more expensive ones and i've got slapped gotten slapped in the face i, I think it was a couple of uh, maybe one or two months ago and I, it was so bad that i actually i just got slapped <laughs> and you know I, I just got quiet and i went to the corner and i put my hands over my eyes and i was so close to starting crying and i was like <laughs> <laughs> then i just screamed like <laughs> you know like that sound that you make. i was so mad but then i ordered a batch of very expensive belts well not very expensive they just cost like two dollars more and the the difference was night and day to be honest and they last Absolutely. a lot longer and a pro tip for you, you definitely... sorry yeah you, you definitely get what you pay for for sure yeah and a pro tip uh, i think it was alex Steele who told me uh, he didn't tell me but it, it said in the video and i listened so uh he said that if you're going to work with wood uh, you should always start have a fresh belt for wood because if you start yeah. uh, using steel, it's not going to take any good on the wood. And uh, I can tell you that that's true. Yes, yeah, no, definitely. If uh, the moment that you start using steel on any kind of belt, whether it be ceramic or otherwise, um, it immediately either rounds over the surface or fractures the surfaces of the belt, uh, the belt grit, and uh, then you're more increasing the chances of burning the uh, material that you're burning the wood that you're grinding yeah and so it doesn't take it. yeah and it moves yeah. a lot slower if you uh, you steal on it first so yeah that's it yeah so I mean, my, my fire ant is one of the fastest um off the shelf grinders in the world uh it runs at 100 hertz uh which is 7,000 surface feet per minute so wow um it's quite quite a a beastly machine it, it runs really fast yeah um and so yeah when when the belts pop on that thing you definitely know about it uh, <laughs> which is Having why which hit. is why i don't cheap out which is why i don't cheap out on my belts i actually had one bust on me uh, a 50 grit bust on me Ooh. and because i had my head right next to the idler wheel it actually the the belt smacked me in the forehead and i actually had these these like parallel lines running down my forehead like oh, scratches <laughs> It looked yeah. like it looked like I'd kind of tattooed a barcode on my forehead. Um, <laughs> but I mean, the other thing about cheap belts is um, because they blunt really easily, they also blunt unevenly, and um, it comes that that comes back to you know we're talking about finishing belts and stuff like that, or like Scotch Brite belts. Yeah. Um, with with poor quality belts, you tend to find that you get a less even finish out of them, um, which can be quite a pain when you're trying to do like a machine finish 
Um, yeah. You know, if you're trying to do machine finish blades and stuff like that, if you've got poor quality belts or even worn high quality belts, you tend to actually get um, a really uneven finish where some sections are burnished and some sections aren't. So if you're doing a machine finish, which I've only done a few times, I'm not a big fan. But um, if you're doing a machine finish, then you need to use fresh belts, like absolutely need it. Yeah. And uh, the higher quality, the better. Of course. Yeah. <clears throat> so I was uh, thinking about that we should probably talk a little bit about, about the basics of swordsmithing. Um, no, I'm I'm cool with with talking swords. I've actually been doing a lot of research recently into um, swords and uh, their production. Was, oh, nice. Um, mess- I've been um, talking or I've been messaging uh, Peter Johnson, um, uh, a fellow Swede, <laughs> um, and one of the world's foremost swordsmiths. Um, I have yet to hear back from him, but uh, <laughs> 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 um, but no, I have I have discussed um, with a couple of different bladesmiths around the world um, the whole idea of. Uh, reproducing historical swords and because uh, that's something I want to move into in the next couple of years is uh, reproducing museum rep, uh, museum pieces because mm. um, that's that's kind of one of my passions yeah and um, there was recently a post on all swords of a bunch of uh, like quote unquote medieval swords which Peter had commented on saying that unfortunately most of the photos were fakes and I was very interested to see how how he knew they were fakes because they looked, you know, relatively uh, relatively good to me. But um, you know, you got to ask the experts. Yeah. So isn't he the one who designed the swords for the Arn movie? Um, I believe so. He's all, he also designs all of the swords for Albion. Um, yeah, yeah. The, then it's uh, then it's him because Albion is yeah. the one who made the swords for the Iron movie, and I think that he's the yeah, one. Yeah. So Peter Peter develops or like developed all the designs for um, for Albion. He also wrote the book on designing swords. Literally, he wrote uh, a book called "The Sword Form and Thought," and um, it goes into very very specific detail. You know, into the geometry and you know the, the overall layout of historical swords through the ages. You know, talking from you know early Hellenic period swords all the way through to you know Viking period, early Crusade era. You know, the, the low medieval ages. Then you got the high medieval ages, which when you're getting to the oak shot, you know, type twelves and thirteens, um, mm. all the way through to rapiers and stuff like that. So he's yeah, he's a master, absolutely absolute god when it comes to swordsmanship and like swordsmithing a, a true nerd a true nerd indeed. yes indeed yeah. so i wanted to i made actually a little uh, sheet uh, of paper here with uh, some uh, points steps if you want and as far as i can get it it's nine steps of making to make a swords and they all vary in difficulty can anyone guess the first step Acquire an anvil. No. (laughs) Acquire appropriate tooling. No. Um. You already have those stuff. If you want to start, uh, like, uh, what's the first step in making a sword, you think? Designing would normally be the first step. Ah, well, 10 steps. You've got to know what kind of sword that you're going to build. 
It's 10 steps, okay? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> by, by the end of this podcast, there's going to be like 38 steps. <laughs> okay. It so, always it always helps to know, to know the design of your sword before yeah. you start working on it. Well, I, and I'm the swordsmith and I don't even know the first... And then you've got to calculate the volume of the, uh, the piece. No, no, no. Okay, yeah, so... The- Guys, guys, leave it to the to the king, okay? <laughs> leave it to the king. <laughs> I've made the most swords. I know what I'm talking about. No, I don't. But here's here's my ten steps now uh, for making a sword. It's the the easy and fast way, okay? Step one, designing the sword. Step two, picking the steel. Step three, forming it. Step four, grinding it. Step five. Uh, hardening and tempering. Step six, finishing the blade. Step seven, uh, the cross guard. And step eight, the pommel. Step nine, the handle. And step ten, the ascent. Yeah, fairly good for 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 cruciform swords. That's that's definitely accurate. For what? Um, cruciform swords. So you're talking the, the you know oak shot type ten through to about oak shot type eighteen. Uh, although most Oakshot typologies tend to be cruciform. A, a good um, example of what uh, Sam's talking about is what if you were making a copus, for example, that didn't have a cross guard or a pommel? Ah, okay, yeah. Uh, I didn't understand yeah. what you were talking about first, but now I understand. Yeah, so just a typical, you know, looks like a cross sword. Yeah, cruciform. So, cruciform sword. Cruciform, okay, that's what you say in English. Yeah. Yes. All right. Because uh, so, it lo- looks like a cross when you hold it up. Yeah. Yeah, Cruci- exactly. cruciform means cross-like. All right, so, Th- thank you. Cross-like in form. <laughs> yes. Well, you guys make me sound like a real noob at this. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> we're we're, we're right. sword nice. nerds. I mean... <laughs> yeah, you probably yeah, know no, more we're about both... swords than me. So, uh, but uh, yeah, but I used to make massive history and sword no, sword buffs. Well, then so, you can, uh, uh, then we can go through the steps then and talk about the different steps of making a sword. You probably know. I'm actually quite them. interested. I don't, I don't know much about the making process of swords. I just, I know a lot about using them, not making them. So I'm, I'm all, I'm all ears. I'm ready to learn. I'm ready to get some knowledge. Well, I've forged a few blades now and I've ground a few blades now and I've actually made a lot of hilt fittings because um, one of the things that I do in my business is make uh, custom hilt fittings for fencing swords. Um, you know, for medieval reenactment uh, fighters, mm. they uh, buy blades and then they send the blades to me to get custom hilts on them. So, um, yeah. you know, through through several different projects, I've made, you know, six or seven swords. I just haven't actually made an entire sword yet. <laughs> I'm actually sitting yeah. here looking at my first sword blade, which is... <laughs> still yet to be hardened but it's got its fullest scraped in and it's all been ground and it's ready to petrate i've just got to for anyone listening that might be unfamiliar as to why that's the case is because in competition fencing the actual composition the flexibility uh ranges of the blade need to be incredibly precise for reasons Absolutely. for safety, for um, making sure that people are on even ground and things like that. So you can't just bring, you know, it's not like BYO rapier to a fencing match. You actually have to use something that is approved. And the hilt and the handle, that's that's fine. You can have as much customization as you want there to within within reason. But that blade, usually they buy a pre-made, pre-authorized blank. 
Yeah, there there are a few makers in the world at the moment that make swords specifically for the types of fencing that I do, and mm. they tend to use very specific alloys of steel that aren't very good for making like fighting swords, mm. but they're good for making swords to fight with. If you if that makes any sense, yeah, they they're are good at dancing, more... not at taking hits. That will, yeah, they, they're not, they wouldn't be great at holding an edge or stabbing people with because they're a little too flexible. But, um, yeah, yeah. They're, they're good at beating uh, against other swords. Yeah, I've, I've actually held a few of them, uh, training as well. They're very different from uh, spring steel, for example. Mm. Yeah. So, so basically, the f- first step then, uh, after, no way, the second step. Uh, designing is the first step, but the, the second step is picking the steel. And if you're just so starting steel. out, if you're just starting out, what you should look after is, well, you could make a sword out of iron as well, because some, at some point... The Vikings did for a long time. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you're doing this to practice at the beginning. If you're a total greeny at this and never done it before you want to practice and it's stupid to waste uh, good steel on something that's probably not going to be very very good so well you don't have to make very very good swords just to use good steel but you know what i'm saying so you probably want to try it try iron at first if you have access to good steel then use it <laughs> yeah. well the thing is um is. when if you're getting into sword making and you, you've got some blacksmithing experience you, you're okay and comfortable working a hammer go to a car junkyard and find a brace of leaf springs from an old car and it's cheap you can probably get them for five ten dollars and you've got a stack of steel there that would make you easily make you five swords yeah absolutely so uh yeah we can use Drag tines. I know Niels has used drag tine to make a sword or one or two. Oh, yeah. Drag tine? What's that? <laughs> um, so from I think it's your most recent video, the uh, the large semicircular um, piece of spring steel yeah. you used was actually a drag tine. It's a, from a a plow. Yeah. From a from a rural plow. Yes, uh, I can just tell you that that steel is. I don't. I don't know what it's called. It's mystery steel, basically. But uh, from the testing that I've been doing, it's uh, very do uh, very good at holding an edge and being flexible at the same time. So, so basically, try to find some spring steel if you want to try uh, try it out uh, using that kind of steel. And as Sam said, you can ask a car repair shop or a car junkyard. Uh, I don't, uh, um, you should not tra- at the first uh, buy, I think you should try to find as cheap as possible when you're just starting out practice. Yeah, you will screw up the first few times. <laughs> yeah. You should just see my first swords. They're standing in the corner right now. Yeah. Watching me. <clears throat> well, <laughs> Did you send them to the corner for misbehaving? Yeah. They're all there. <laughs> There's five swords in the corner. I, mean, I often advise people to start small and work big, you know, walk before you can run. Um, because I know a lot of people who get into blacksmithing who want to make swords. Um, and so the first thing they do is go out and try and make swords. That's what I did. But yeah, swords are such a huge investment of time and technique. And even though at the end you might come out with something that's sword-shaped and has an edge on it, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a, a sword. Like, even if it looks good, it doesn't necessarily mean that it fits within the realm of what an actual sword would be. Yeah, I'll um, never forget the first of- time I ever held a real, properly-made sword. I was shocked at how light it was. 
and how it just it felt right in my hand it it, it instantly became an extension of my body and it was all because of the balance the distribution of the weight and it was just incredible it was an incredible experience yeah so basically the first times i made swords were was like mostly for appearance uh, like you're not going to use display this. swords yeah display yeah. swords yeah so basically once you've uh, uh, chosen your steel you move on to the next step which is forming it because i mean when you start out making knives sometimes you can use uh, the stock removal uh, process which uh, works very good but making a sword from stock removal is another thing it's hard to find the steel that's the right shape for that because you need a lot of length usually and a lot of width uh, and um, so so i don't recommend uh, you, uh, stock removing a sword and unless you've uh, got a 2x72 <laughs> no, yeah and, and a lot of belts <laughs> yeah yeah that's gonna take a long time so so um it's it's uh it's about the forging process you you need to try uh, like um uh, account for how much uh, am I going to lose and how long can I make this piece and stuff like that. So practicing that, if you have, for example, like uh, my springs that I had uh, for this sword that I'm using, doing right now, uh, I actually made a test piece first just to see how far I could stretch it. And uh, that's not a bad idea. And I can uh, use that to make another sword, but uh, it was a test piece, but it it works. And sometimes when you get old steel, it might have some holes in it and stuff like that. And that can be hard to work out what to do with, especially if they're in place on the leaf spring. And you shouldn't weld them up. You should try to forge weld them if you can. Uh, mm. But that could be easier said than done. Yeah. I, I, I did that on the last... Uh, video i think no the first video on the witcher sword series well that actually raises yeah. a, a fairly um poignant point about this is because you remember how we, we said just before that a lot of people getting into blacksmithing the first thing they want to make is a sword when you want to make a sword to to forge that initial form even if you're going to do most of the work on a, on a large grinder to forge that initial form you need to have some pretty solid fundamentals of blacksmithing down to be able to yeah. draw out that and form. I mean, every every long sword needs to have that distal taper where the, the steel at the hilt is quite a bit thicker than the steel at the tip of the sword. And that's what yeah. creates that flexibility in the spring steel. If you have a straight piece of string, spring steel that's the same thickness the entire length down it, it's not going to bend in the same way or at least in the necessary way, you need to be able to draw the weight of the balance back towards the handle. And to be able to do that under a hammer takes a certain amount of skill. And unless you are comfortable enough working a hammer to be able to do that, then you're not really going to be able to pump out a sword form in with any sort of degree of ease. Yeah, and I mean, always after you forge the, forge the sword, you're going to have, it's not going to be perfectly straight. It never is, not for me at least. And there's always different thicknesses before, because somewhere, some places you need to draw out more and they get thinner and stuff like that. So you need to like have a way to like remove that material or be very, That's very precise it. at the, the anvil to get it straight. That's where a flatter becomes really useful. Yes. Mm. Like we were talking about, was it last episode? I think it was last episode. No, it was, was mm. two episodes ago. I don't remember. Yeah, yeah. No, flatters are incredibly useful tools when it comes to yeah. swordsmithing. And if you're using a power hammer, using a kiss block. 
Or or a top tool. Like there, there are flat like under under the power hammer flatters. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I guess most of the people that are interested in the basics of swordsmithing are not going to have a power hammer, probably. But even if you have know. a treadle, even if you have a treadle hammer, a kiss block would be very, uh, very helpful. Yeah. Yeah, for evening out thickness, for sure. Yeah. Well, but once, once on... you've got. Yep. Oh, sorry. Uh, moving on to step four, then uh, it's the grinding process, and if you just start out and don't have the tools. I started off, you can see in my first video on YouTube, uh, when I make the iron sword, I actually don't use a belt grinder. I use uh, angle grinder and files. And mm-hmm. uh, I can tell you that took a while. <laughs> yes. <laughs> At a, st- a steady hand. Yeah, but because when you use a angle grinder, you're not going to have straight lines and you're not, nothing is straight, basically. The only thing that you get is uh, precision on working on the bevel up to the center of the sword. That's very good for with a grand uh, angle grinder, but nothing else. Yeah. You're not get, every cut you make is uh, like a scoop, so it won't be straight mm-hmm. at all. So you need to have a lot of files ready because the filing is what's going to save you, basically. And actually, on that subject, uh, we were talking about belts and belt life. If you're going to be making, if you're going to be forging even knives and axes and stuff like that, I would highly recommend taking an get angle grinder to them. Yeah, get the scale off there before you take them to the belts because yeah, yeah, it's the scale point. is ten times harder than even the ceramic belts that you will buy for your two by seventy two. And yeah, it is a murderer of grit. Yeah, scales kill belts faster than anything else. Yeah, that's um, a very, in very my good point. First, in my first sword video, um, you know, forging my first sword, which is on my channel, I actually, uh, in a previous video, made a Japanese Sen scraper, which is a, a, a steel scraper um, for scraping swords. Funnily enough, well, you know, they use it for scraping all kinds of metal, but I was made it specifically for scraping swords. And I used that scraper to scrape the, the scale off my blade, but I could have just as easily used an angle grinder and a, and a grinding disc. Mm, or a flat yeah. wheel. Well, uh, yeah, wire wheels wheel. can do it too, can't they? Wire wheels. Um, wire wheels can get the the majority of the loose scale off, but they're sometimes really, really tough bits that just won't come off. Yeah, yeah, that's um, true. Um, the other thing is, if you've got a tank that's big enough, or even like a little uh, a flat tray that's long enough to hold your sword or knife or whatever, dump it in um, white vinegar for twenty four hours, and that'll completely, you know, descale your piece. Um without having to use abrasives all the top tips you only get it here on the forge cast folks <laughs> yes so moving on um, well you could make a fuller and stuff but we will talk about that in another episode so moving on one thing to notice and a pro tip uh, is that a sword is a very long piece of uh, steel and it's got to be pretty precise so what you need is a very yes long piece of forge so basically, it's almost impossible to heat treat it in a regular small forge. So, well, you could do it, but it's going to be a, a bad time. So you need something to heat treat it in. Yeah, you need to like, like, like a, dig a pit in your backyard, get some charcoal and a steel pipe, and f- create yourself a long blower out of the steel pipe, drill holes at in- intervals of uh, every couple of inches. And then yeah. blow a hairdryer down it, bury that under the hot coals, and you've got yourself a trench forge that'll be good enough for a nice even heat of a sword. 
Yeah. It's, it's And uh, always remember to watch the sword because at this point you already put in a couple of, a lot of hours into it. Oh, so yeah. you don't, you don't want to mess this up. And then it's time for the quench. I usually use uh, some sort of oil. I hear a lot of different oils works well, but uh, you ha sometimes you just have to try it out and see what works for you and that specific steel. I used to use motor oil. Probably not the best. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, motor motor oil is one of the one of the worst things you could use. Yeah, it's a it's super super. Well, not only is it too slow, but it's also incredibly carcinogenic. Yes. Yeah. Uh, use um, can most canola oil is fine. Ras um, yeah, most what's it called in Swedish? I don't know, uh, in English. I don't remember. Uh, rasp oil? No, not rasp oil. Rice bran oil. Rice bran oil is probably one of the best food-grade oils you can use because it has yeah, the highest flash point. It's one um, of those uh, yellow oils. Uh, yeah, I used that as well. Um, for, so f food oils can be used as quenchants. Now, any oil that is burned, like any oil that smokes, is carcinogenic. Um, but motor oils tend to have a lot more um, of the crude oils and stuff like that in them, which makes them a lot worse for your lungs. Yeah. So, I mean, my, me personally, I have um, a small tank of Parks 50 high-speed high quench oil, which is a oil which is specifically developed for heat treating. Um, but in my long sword tank, because I couldn't afford to buy some more Parks 50 or Horton's K or anything like that, I use rice bran oil, um, which is just a food-grade oil. But the reason I use rice bran is because it has the highest flash point of any cooking oil. Um, which means that it's less likely to burst into flames on my hand when I quench stuff. Yeah. Burn your shop down. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I, I... funnily enough, rice bran also tends to be one of the thinnest food-grade oils, which means that it's a lot quicker than a lot of other oils. The, normally, the, the thicker the oil, the slower the quench, and the slower the quench, the less hardness, well, the less likely you are to harden some steels. Yeah, but I mean, you can... For for me, example, I, I used motor oil. I think for over a year before I used uh, the other what you uh, what you call it in English, rasp oil. oil. We say in, we say in uh, Sweden, uh, and uh, I mean sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, it's, uh, it's some of it depends on uh, maybe not heating the blade up as well uh, as much as well. But I mean, you have to and try it out. Come into specific steels as well. Some steels need a really fast quench, like. Most shallow hardening steels like W1, W2, uh, and those kinds of steels tend to require a very fast quench, which is why they're a preferred water quenching steel. Although, of course, you always risk cracking your blade with water, and I wouldn't recommend water quenching your sword. Um, yeah, especially not with mystery but, steel. Especially yeah. not with mystery steel. But um, yeah, the, a lot of steel, there are some steels out there who will that will just not harden in oil, they need the quick quench of water or a specific fast quenching oil. Yeah. Mm. That's true. So, yeah, and, and the... being, being, being Swedish, Nils, wouldn't you use the urine of a red-headed virgin? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't tried it. Maybe I should. <laughs> you should. <laughs> Yeah, but, well, basically it comes down to what you start with what you start with. And what I had laying around was uh, motor oil and it worked for yep. me. And uh, you should always wear protection when you do that because, yeah. as you said, the fumes are not great for your lungs. 
and it will yeah. take uh, it will start to burn so uh be careful out there guys it, yeah, it's and try, try with too. yes and try with small pieces at first because it's gonna be a bad time uh, yeah, and you should always you should always preheat your oil when you're quenching yeah um, always normally the rule of thumb is around uh 80 to 100 degrees celsius um is a good preheat you want it to be to the point that you don't want to stick your hand in it before you yeah. quench anything in there and that just lowers the viscosity of the of the oil and increases the speed at which that it quenches the steel Conversely. i always go for that 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 temperature that um you know when you run a bath and you've made it too yeah. hot and you don't you don't quite <coughs> want to put your balls in it yet <laughs> yeah that that I mean, temperature if, it's, if the oil's at that that's where that's that's good for me <laughs> yeah i mean for me it was always the um when i'm whenever i was steaming milk in the you know when i was doing like making cappuccinos and stuff yeah and you'd feel feel the side of the tin and once the the side of the tin you couldn't put your fingers on it for more than two seconds that was when it yep. was at temp temperature that's that's the temperature that i tend to run at so yeah well we move on to the tempering of swords. It could be pretty tricky uh, if you don't have a big oven, which pe some people do. But uh, there are other ways to do it as well. Maybe not as safe and as secure as an oven, but uh, you could use a blowtorch. Or yep. uh, so, as the old people did, they uh, used the heat of the forge and uh, put it mm -hmm. over it. Yeah, yeah, yeah with, you can use that, the same trough forge that you made before to, to do the quench. And you just got to be careful because the edges will be thinner than the spine You that you don't have too much heat in the edges before the spine tempers. Yeah, there are ways yeah, you, you can keep work that, that out. Yeah, but you, there are ways you could do that. I try to isolate the flame on the the spine and i work yeah. very slowly and it's important this is a pro tip okay always check both sides because sometimes you you gotta have some meat on the sword at that point a little bit more than a, the finished product as at least and sometimes i've seen that when i heat it up on one side the colorization is not the same on both sides not exactly and it if i'm yeah. unlucky it has moved a lot uh, the blue has moved a lot on the other side and sometimes you want to have a blue in the in the spine but sometimes the the best color is somewhat straw i think straw yellow yeah yeah, yeah straw yeah. yellow uh, i mean i'm actually looking into um using a, a forge burner to uh oil temper my sword yeah um Ooh. because i've got a long because i've got a long um upright quenching tank um taking a leaf out of uh bks or baltimore knife and swords book they just put a weed burner on the on the base of their quench tank, um, and then put a thermometer at the top and just wait until the the temperature evens out to around the tempering temperature, which is four hundred fifty degrees or so. Yeah. Um, and then just sit the sword in there, and that's a really good way to get a fully even temper and uh, a much more controlled temper than you know doing it spottily with with heat yeah. from a blowtorch. Yeah, that's yeah, quite I mean, a good idea. Yeah, it, it is. The blowtorch well, is not an easy thing. It's the, it's the easiest in-shop answer I could think of to the question. Because obviously, without an even heat kiln that's like 40 inches long, which, you know, even a 19-inch Paragon kiln costs $1,500. A lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they're ridiculous expensive. I was thinking of ways that I could potentially temper large, you know, like long pieces of material 
in my home workshop. And that seemed to be one of the easiest ways. And seeing as I have a lot of uh, extra burners lying around in my workshop, um, because I buy gas, well, I've bought like four gas burners from Gamico and they, I kind of only use two of them. The other two sit there waiting for, for a forge to be put in. Yeah. I figured it'd be, I'll make up a frame and actually like point it at the base of my quench tank and basically just use it as a tempering oven. It's a very good idea. Yeah. So, I mean, it comes with its risks because you're heating the uh, oil to, you know, 200 to 220 degrees Celsius it will be smoking at that point and any kind of ignition source is going to potentially create a giant oil fire in your shed. Yeah, do um, it outside. <laughs> do it somewhere where you're not going to burn your shed down. And also um, the, the other thing that's, uh, that could be tricky if, uh, is if, you, uh, twist, if your blade is twisted after heat treating or warped or stuff like that. You could actually yeah. work that out with... Uh, There's a lot of different methods. Yeah, it is. Yes. I, I usually take a flat spot and I clamp the sword down before I temper it with a blowtorch. That has worked a lot yeah. uh, for me. Yeah, I mean, you can do that. You can do that as a separate tempering cycle. Like I normally temper my blades before I try and work out any warps. Um, so yeah. I'll do one tempering cycle at you know at four hundred or four hundred fifty degrees Fahrenheit, and then I'll check for warps, and then I'll you know clamp it up and re-temper again uh to work out that warp the reason i do that first tempering cycle is to lower the risk of uh fractures coming out after the quench um because every second that you leave it at its fully hardened state is another second that it has an opportunity to crack yeah yes Um, with with really long blades I've, i've quenched a couple of blades you know in the 16 to 18 inch length um which have been you know that that have warped quite badly out of the quench and depending on your control of time and temperature you do have about a 10 second window after your quench if you hold the steel in there for about five seconds Mm. um once you pull it out you will have about a 10 second window where the steel is still in its austenite state before it transitions before it transitions to martensite where you can make adjustments before it fully hardens. Although you run the risk, if you keep trying to tweak it after the mountain side is formed, you'll just snap the thing in half. Yeah, and also- yeah, If you're if a you're... gambling man, you can get the three point method. Yeah, if you, <laughs> if you watch, uh, yeah, yeah. But if you watch uh, that works latest episode or two episodes ago or something, they just talked about that actually. Uh, they use uh, four, two by four um, wood and clamp it directly after the quench. Uh, apparently yeah that's actually a really cool way to do it there's a couple of pieces of two by four and, and some uh some clamps. clamps and you can clamp your blade between them and that keeps them relatively straight yeah. and from what i've seen surprisingly effective yeah it looks yeah it looks it i've got to try that on one of my blades one day i haven't tried it either so that's that's gonna be fine maybe i'll do it on this one so uh, basically, we've been uh, going out of time here. <laughs> we get stuck on each point here, but uh, on each step. But basically, we have one more left for the blade to be finished, and the other ones are uh, the details of the swords. So we can hilting. maybe save hilting and stuff like that. So we could save that for another episode, I think, uh, sure. and go back to it. But the finished, uh, the, this stuff that we're going into now is basically the finishing of the sword, the blade. So, uh, um, and I usually, 
I usually go back to uh, the grinder at first, and then uh, I've always always uh, worked with the hand uh, pa- sandpaper, wet sandpaper. So yeah, and those wet, are usually yeah. available everywhere. So uh, just go to a hardware store and buy uh, sheets of. Uh, of well, if you, hard, if you're going to be doing a lot of if you're going to be doing a lot of hand sanding, I would highly suggest Rhino Wet um, Indasa paper. It's it's time. not too much more expensive, but it is so much better. It what, lasts. What's it? Tell me again. Rhino Wet. It's uh, Rhino Wet Indasa. Um, I've got a couple of photos of some stuff that I've bought uh, at the Perth Knife Show, and uh, I bought a couple of packs of uh, Rhino Wet then. But um, it's a they're a red paper. It's it's red rather than like the black or brown that you normally buy. Yeah, and um, they are they are so good from steel removal. I've huh. uh, I've decreased the amount of hand sanding time by half. Wow. Um, that I normally do. So definitely worth the investment if you're doing a lot of hand sanding. Rhino wet is spectacular. I've but, also but heard good sponsored. things about Hermes paper. Uh, yeah, Hermes and uh, Norton Black Ice are also really good. And uh, even uh, even Rustoleum. Yeah, I, I haven't had an opportunity to use Rustoleum. I've used the others. Um, Rhino Wet just tends to beat them out on you know the quality of the the finish and the the uh, the you know extensiveness of their use. Um, yeah. But yeah, and I mean uh, one of the things I was going to talk about is finishing swords and stuff like that. Um, in bladesmithing in general, you always want to go into the quench being quite a bit thicker than what you want your final piece to be as. Yeah. Nils mentioned minimize warping, and the old the old adage um, in bladesmithing is: if a wicked edge you wish wish to win, first forge thick and then grind thin. Wow, <laughs> beautiful! Um, and I mean uh, that comes back to uh, decarburization in the surface of uh, high carbon steels, in that if you forge too close to finish, then you're more likely to have decarburized material at your edge at which point it's unhardenable and is not going to be usable. Um, but that comes back to, you know, the, the quenching as well. You want it to be thick so that it minimizes the uh, level of warping and the chances of cracking. But then that means that you've got a lot more time at the grinder after hardening, which uh, can be a little bit spotty because you've got to be careful of your temper colors running in uh, through friction. So, guys, we've been running over an hour now, and we actually had a question that we should uh, that we got on Instagram that we should uh, answer before we oh. leave today. All right, Signature Metalworks asks, "What inspired you to make this?" It's uh, well, from my perspective, it was really that this is that you can actually see there's a, a video series going around at the moment on YouTube of what the blacksmithing community means to me, uh, and there's a heap of people that have jumped in on that. And Yarmez at Island Metal Forge started it off, and and then Roy uh, Adams at Chrysanet Ironworks jumped onto it. This is sort of our contribution to giving that community a voice, a, a, a central point where people can uh, listen in and, and hear just conversation between passionate smiths about the thing that they love and that gives them purpose in life. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, from my, from my perspective, it was an opportunity to share even more knowledge with those that would be interested in getting into the, 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 um, the craft or potentially people who've been in the craft who just don't have information uh, regarding certain topics that we might have um, access to. So, and 
the big thing has been for me, and you know, I was going to mention that as well, is that um, the the building of the blades, uh, the blacksmithing and the bladesmithing community online has been amazing. And um, thanks to guys like Roy and John Switzer from Black Bear Forge, and those kind of guys, uh, the community has been building slowly and just epically over the last years. Uh, over the last years, and uh, I'm really happy to be part of that. And I'm really glad that we have this opportunity as a podcast to, you know, kind of contribute to that community. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, the community is definitely the big, the big uh, driver, big um, reason. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I think the igniting thing for me was uh, like me and Sam used to, we talked to each other on Skype, and then we realized, hey, this is pr very fun. So maybe we should, uh, I thought that maybe we should do something with this because there's a lot of times I'm out in the workshop and I listen to podcasts and the most amazing thing to listen to is other people talking about almost the same stuff that I'm doing. I get ideas and stuff like that. So I listen a lot to Knife Talk, for example, but I miss the, the, the stuff that's more like the things that I do and that concerns uh, more of the blacksmithing part of, uh, of uh, things. So... So, so I thought that maybe we could uh, help out with that. If if there's a way that we can contribute to the community, this may be it. So, uh, and so I'm... far the feedback has been fantastic. It's definitely something that I think people have been wanting, which is really nice to hear from people that are doing it. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, I'd I'd like to take that opportunity, this opportunity, to thank everyone who's listening to this podcast for your support. Even though you know, even if you don't, you know, message us or anything like that. We really appreciate you taking the time out to uh, to listen to us ramble on about our passion, um, and hopefully we we give you some information or maybe give you the impetus to get started in the craft. Yeah, and, uh, and speaking of it's messaging always... us, yeah, yeah, speaking of messaging us, yeah. If you uh, want to contact us, you can contact us at ask.forgecast at gmail.com. That's ask.forgecast at gmail.com. Yeah. Um, you can email us with questions or comments. You can also uh, message us, instant message us on Instagram, although that may not be curated as well as the email will be. But um, you can always try and reach us on there. Um, and if you do have any questions, we might be able to address it in a podcast, or we can, uh, or we will be able to get back to you via direct email to answer any questions you might have regarding this community or this craft. Yeah, and remember, everything is a learning process. Even for the most uh, learned smiths out there, there's still a learning process for everyone. So we want to share Absolutely. that with you, guys. I, I learn everything, er, not everything, but a lot of things from talking with you guys. And uh, it's such a great time because once you're out there working, you get good at some stuff, but there's a lot of things that you don't really get a hang, uh, get a lot of uh, knowledge about, and that you really want to ask people, but you don't really know who to ask. So this this should really be one of those places that all questions are welcome to to learn. Absolutely, there's no such thing as a stupid question, exactly. unless you have to ask what, it every time. What if socks were made of tongues? now well that's a there's... good question um <laughs> <laughs> so basically thank you a lot for listening today you can follow us on the dot forgecast on instagram ask us a uh, you can uh, send an email at the email address we mentioned earlier you can follow me at nils ogreen on instagram and youtube you can follow sam at sam towns bladesmith on youtube instagram and facebook 
and Alex at Valhalla Ironworks on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. Thank you so much for listening today. We look forward to next week when Roy is coming from Christ Center Ironworks. It's going to be great. Check us out.